HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to HRN Happy Hour. For those who don't know, HRN Happy Hour is a show that we do every week in Bushwick, Brooklyn. My name's Kat Johnson. I'm with Heritage Radio Network. We are a nonprofit food podcast network based in Brooklyn, but this week we're here in Denver at Slow Food Nations. I'm here with my lovely co-hosts, as always, Katie Mosman-Wadler and Hannah Forden. Happy Sunday. Happy Usually Sunday. we do this on Thursday, I know, so I'm a little confused. It's supposed to be Thursday, 5 o'clock. I'm like, it's 5 o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is 4.30 well, in Brooklyn. It's 4.30 in Brooklyn. On Sunday. Yeah. yeah. But, it's, but it's close. We're getting there. Yeah. We're, like, coming right into the home stretch at 5 o'clock. And um, we are very, very excited to be at Slow Food Nations. This is our third year. And um, I wanted to say a quick thanks to our sponsors who have made it possible for us to be here. Uh, of course, huge thank you to Slow Food for having us. And thanks to Hearst Ranch, the Big Green Egg, and the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts for making Heritage Radio Network on tour all possible. And uh, we have a very special guest joining us today. I'm so excited. So excited. <laughs> No uh, pressure. No pressure. We're so excited. Our guest is Ravashi Rangan from um, Grace Communications Foundation. Thank you. Welcome. Like a gin and tonic. Thank yes. you. <laughs> we'll get right on that. Um, I haven't seen the bar cart go by in a minute, but we're going to keep our eye out. Yeah, if anybody is a runner. Um, <laughs> we do have uh, some fresh peaches from the Denver mm. Farmers Market and yesterday beer. morning. We also have some seasoned roasted mealworms or meal bugs, mm. if you will, from this morning's conversation on edible insects in case that uh, makes you hungry. Everyone's but we, happy Don't worry, favorite. we have peaches. We have peaches. Peaches sound better to <laughs> the mealworms. Um, so, Urvashi, you are here with Grace Communications and Foodprint. Uh, tell us about some of the events that you've been involved with this weekend. Sure. Um, well, I've been lucky enough to be involved with a couple of different panels. One today was called Making Sense of Food, which is, I think, what most of us are doing here in the first place. Um, and the other one was, uh, what's on the, what should we be looking for on the 2020 ballot when it comes to food? Where are people now? And, and what should we be looking to in the future? Can you give us like the bullet points takeaways for what we should be looking for? Yeah, I th- on the ballot initiative, I think what we're, you know, anyone who's only doing one thing or saying one thing is only doing one thing. And I think we need 
a candidate who's got some kind of holistic approach to the food system, who understands more than just one element or one dimension of it. Um, we know as we're thinking about regenerative, we want to think about the environment, we want to think about the health of the product, water and climate are part of both of those things. Um, we're also concerned about social justice, the people making our food, the people who live near where we're making food, um, and the animals themselves that we raise and how they're doing as well and the fact that they're being treated um, in the right ways and being raised properly. So we want someone who sort of has all of those different elements in their minds as they're thinking about a better food system. Um, I, obviously, we cannot, um, we're a nonprofit. We can't talk about what candidates we like or don't like, but do you we think... We can talk about them. We can't endorse anybody. Fair enough. Are there any thus far? It's still, it's not really early. It's coming really fast. The election's coming super fast, but... Is there anyone who, in your mind, is, think, is talking about certain aspects in the right way um, at all? You know, I think Cory Booker is someone who, who has a pretty holistic approach to food production. Um, he didn't just start that at his candidacy for president's. Um, he's been working on these issues for a long time. He's been one of the few representatives who's actually, senators that is, who's actually tried to put in legislation around things like animal welfare. Um, I think he's got a really good perspective. I think um, Elizabeth Warren has a good comprehensive perspective on that policy, as she does with many things, and Bernie Sanders as well. Um, um, I think Pete, help me. Yeah, I think he's actually got some really interesting um, positions as well. And, you know, it's coming from all over, right? Whether it's immigration and labor or animal welfare or chemical use and toxins. These are three totally different areas. Um, and again, I think the best candidate is going to be the one who eventually can start to pull all of those things together. What... Um what do you think a universal basic income would do on the food policy front, if anything? I mean... Wait, so speaking of somebody who's just talking about really one issue. Mm. You know, it is so sad. It's like teachers in America. I mean, farmers are just... They're underpaid. I don't know... Well, I do know. But someone is making a huge part of that margin between the time it leaves the farm gate and the time we're buying it in the store. There's a huge differential in price... Um, and I, I'm pretty sure someone's making that in their pockets. And so to the degree we can maybe equalize that pricing system a little bit more, and in some ways we need to start paying for the real cost of food and making real food um, that may cost a little bit more but that's produced a whole lot better. Can you talk a little bit about what Grace Communications is and what they do? Sure. Um, Grace Communications is a family foundation, and we uh, support a number of different food initiatives um, in, the f in, in the sustainable and regenerative food space, also in research on conventional agriculture systems and some of the problems that come out of that. Um, we support academic endeavors and research centers, uh, legal activity, um, and also grassroots uh, activities. So it's the whole gamut, really. And... Um, what's really nice is that we cover a wide spectrum around the regenerative sort of force. We are really concerned with communication and narrative because it can so often 
uh, get adulterated out there and the narrative isn't quite right. We're, we're dealing with that today right now. For example, um, we hear the narrative that grazing animals should not be on the land. We shouldn't even be raising animals. Um, it's a pretty ludicrous narrative, actually. We, we need animals. We need, the, need them grazing on the lands. Um, we need the fertilizer. They work incredibly closely with how we grow our food and keep fertility in the soils. Um, and so how we can make sure that we're getting these clearer narratives out there is really a huge priority and objective for the Grace Communications Foundation. Then we also have a programmatic side which supports our website called Foodprint, and people can get to that uh, by going to foodprint.org. And it's a site for people who want to kind of know the answers right away and what to shop for, and it's also a place where they can do deeper dives. So if you want to understand all about beef or all about eggs, you can take deep dives in those spaces. Um, if you want to learn about the labels that are on them, we rate all labels against 30 different criteria in these different um, areas of animal welfare environment and social justice. Uh, we have a food encyclopedia, so you can choose visually by different types of foods, um, what they are, where they were produ where they're produced, um, historically why they're there, how you can cook with them, and we have a seasonal food guide, so you can actually check out what's in season in your area, and. Um, we did launch Foodprint with a survey, and one of the really interesting findings of that survey was more than two-thirds of people want to buy local food, and we were really surprised by that finding, but really heartened by it, too. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the going back to kind of the media and getting clarity around uh, food issues in the media. How are you guys at Grace Communications looking at media literacy and empowering people to vet and understand media sources? Uh, it's so important. And we are pretty hands-on in terms of helping the partners that we work with get that very training. Because even a lot of the grassroots movement don't have this kind of media training that they need. And so while large national groups have the resources to have that, we know that a lot of the smaller groups simply do not. And um, helping them kind of get get their sea legs in that space mm -hmm. so that they do feel confident and able and, and can defend what's going on, incredibly important to us. And, and we spend a lot of time with that, not just even in terms of our funding, but in terms of our staff support, we will be down and dirty with a lot of our partners trying to help them um, get better with media and media literacy. And uh, sort of on the media consumer side, what can people do to um, make sure that the media that they are reading or viewing is is sort of the is the truth? As, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really subscribe to the fake news um, agenda, but I yeah. do think that there is a lot of misinformation around uh, food and the environment. And so as somebody who is looking to understand more, what can we do? You know, the one thing you should ask yourself whenever you're hearing even something on the news is, who is saying this? And did someone pay them to say it? So those are kind of the first two things. Now, just because somebody might be paid by an industry or an area that they're talking about doesn't necessarily make the information wrong. But it certainly lets you know what bias they might be coming from, and it's important to, to know that. And too often today, uh, you will see groups that call themselves things that they aren't. Um, 
that sound like they're an independent nonprofit, but they're not. And so it's really important to understand who's doing that. Same thing with scientific studies when they're cited or reported in the news. Who did the study? And who paid for the study? There's a number of journals now that are requiring that disclosure, which is really important. Um, but again, trying to understand that as well. And then what we have found in the in-depth reports that we've done on Foodprint is it's just time to get down to brass tacks again. Mm -hmm. We need annotated white paper reports, so not so that people can just regurgitate that, but that so the media has important and nailed down resources to go to. Um, because we all know that just cribbing off of a headline um, can actually lead us completely down the fake news path. Mm -hmm. I have a question um, going back to, and I think it's very much related to misinformation in the media about food. Um, you were talking about Grace Communications work with, with food labels, and that's something that I always feel like as a consumer um, can be very misleading. Um, so can you talk about just, are there any basic guidelines that as someone who's shopping for food, uh, what is legitimate, what is not, what should I look out for? Yeah. Um, yeah. There are. And so labels are such a powerful tool when they're done right to be able to shift demand to the places we want them to go. They're a way for procurement companies to quickly and reliably get product that they know meets a certain set of standards. Um, the problem with our market is that the marketing laws are so lax that any company can basically make any claim they want to. So claims like free range and natural and cage free uh, don't have definitions, they don't have to be verified, and yet more people look for the natural label than look for organic. And while organic's not perfect, uh, it certainly has far more standards than natural and verification behind it. So my, my tip is this. Um, if you're interested in buying truly uh, sustainably produced food and um, you want to understand more about the animal welfare or environment or... Um, social justice aspect of it it's exactly why we put out food print and all of these ratings so that you could decipher that in the marketplace and also know which labels to avoid yeah. that's just as important as knowing <laughs> what labels to support what are some of those nonsense labels well natural is sort of the worst offender out there free range is definitely bad pasture raised without a certification isn't going to take you anywhere grass fed is interesting in that mm -hmm. the usda allows animals to be fed grass but they can be confined maybe they can be finished on grass pellets um and that does not comport with what consumer expectations are around essentially it can say grass-fed if the cow consumed one blade of grass in its entire it had to consume grass but what form that grass comes in it wasn't is a like different question grass growing on the ground that the cow was wandering around and so and people on. should know like the the, the First of all, and pastures and pastures and pastures. So the more diverse your pasture, the more nutrient dense it is, mm -hmm. um, and the healthier the animals are, and the better nutritional profile you're going to actually get out of the meat and the milk that comes from those animals. Mm. Yeah. I just wanted to also throw in a plug, um, going back to something that you said, um, which was looking for who paid for these studies. Who paid for the research? Um, I want to put a shout out for Mary Nessel's blog, uh, foodpolitics.com. She does a great series where she talks about um, industry-funded studies. Also, her Twitter is really funny, but she'll do like the industry-funded study of the week, and it's like the uh, you know, U.S. name your commodity of choice product here shows that eating said commodity 
uh, gives you all these incredible health benefits and it's paid for by exactly so and so and there's so many of these all the time. That's right. You really need to kind of peel back the onion and figure out who and why are behind what you're hearing. Follow the, the money. And, and, and same thing with university studies. Just because it's a university does not mean that it was not um, somehow... I don't want to say bought, but uh, supported by industry funds. Yeah. And so you have to, they endow chairs at universities. It's in part why our land grant system is in the shambles that it's in um, and is not doing regenerative agriculture in the way we want to see it being done. What a great place, theoretically, it would be to train our new farmers of tomorrow in practices that are really going to make a difference. And unfortunately, they are dominated by the big, large corporations that are pushing the chemicals and the seeds, and um, that's what's being done at the land-grant universities now. I'm so interested in land-grant universities. I went to a land-grant university in Alabama that is, a, you know, probably exactly what you're talking about. Um, a, what can be done to fix that system? And B, is there an alternative that currently exists that is doing something the right way? Doing education, higher education the right way? You know, when, when uh, I mean, universities, I guess, to some degree, are always strapped for cash. So they're always looking for some entity to endow something at a university. In the funder universe, we're seeing more foundations get into that space where foundations can actually endow chairs and that provides a little more independence than say a Monsanto endowed chairs somewhere or another company. Um, when companies endow chairs, that's where you start to get a little nervous in terms of the agenda behind it, uh, what they may not want, um, and their level of involvement. And so to some degree that I don't think that's going to go away. But I do think that students who are paying good tuition to go to these universities have every right to be asking these questions. And I think to the degree they know there's a better learning out there and bringing that back into your universities to let them know that's what you want um, is at least a sort of grassroots approach to that. Um, but I think alternative investment is what we need in those land-grant universities so that we can actually get effective, unbiased training for our future farmers. Another thing that's kind of come up a few times this weekend, I was speaking to Michael Marsh and Rudy Arredondo, who both work with farm farmer employers and farm workers, um, kind of two sides of a similar coin. And they were, they were talking a lot about how there's, in this current climate, a big misunderstanding between rural and urban America. What, if anything, is Grace doing to both bridge the gap between those two groups or, or two populations, and then doing to make sure that they understand one another? What a great question. Um, the rural-urban divide is a huge one. And um, what's interesting, of course, is that the urban folks have the purchasing power to shift the demand, but probably the, the least amount of knowledge to make those purchasing decisions. And rural communities are much closer to the ground in terms of where everything's coming from. Um, resources are limited and there's not a huge purchasing power in those places. Um, 
Grace is actually working with a number of other foundations, and we've just recently formed a group called the Funders for Regenerative Agriculture. And we're really excited about it. Um, We're just getting it off the ground. But um, as a kind of mirror to the answer of what the question is, it's that we're trying to make sure we have representatives from all over the country. If we just have the coasts, we're not doing our job. And most of our grain is produced in the Midwest. a huge amount of farming goes down in the Midwest, and so to not have that represented is a problem. I will say that that's been a challenge in the funder world. There are not a lot of Midwest foundations, and so um, that has been a challenge. That is changing, and we do have three or four different Midwest uh, funder groups involved, and they're doing some really interesting, great work. They're doing a lot of organic grain transitioning in the Midwest, um, food hubs in the Midwest, uh, pasture raised systems, all that good stuff. So it's happening, um, and I think, again, to the degree we can marry things top down and bottom up, we'll be able to sort of all of us can help support the same kind of system and demand change that we need. Rubashi, I'm very curious to talk to you about your career and your background. <laughs> um, you started off in toxicology, is mm-hmm. that right? That's right. And um, sort of how did you go from that to changing fields to working in food, and what were some of the forces that motivated you in that direction? Uh, yeah, I was... Um I was a toxicologist in a school of public health in their environmental health program. And um, at the time, smoking was the only environmental health issue. And I remember in toxicology class, we learned about paraquat on marijuana, that 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 pesticide, when it was applied aerially and then people smoked it, would cause a free radical chain reaction in their lungs and would kill people. And so toxicology for me was always fascinating, people's exposures to things in the environment and how that affected them. Um, And my sense was it was going to be a lot more than just smoking. And as time went on, um, I did my postdoctoral research in benzene, and then Exxon wanted to hire me, and I knew I needed to just sort of take a break and figure out what I I wanted to do. I thought as a scientist I could go be a consultant uh, in a consulting group and I ended up working for big companies and after nine months I was fired from that company and um, it's good. What happened that got you fired? Um, They asked me to do an antibiotic resistance campaign for Pfizer and this was about 20 years ago before people really understood we were feeding drugs to healthy animals every day Um, and my overly naive answer was oh a good campaign would be that you would stop feeding healthy animals with the drugs every day because they don't really need drugs if they're healthy uh and they were like that is not a campaign and um i made (laughs) it was the best campaign it was a slow slide to being fired there but it was really good because i understood how big pharmaceuticals get approved and all the under the table stuff that goes on. My bosses were calling people on advisory committees and uh, trying to, you know, get lobby to get the the decision that they wanted. Um, Alcohol companies were building databases on head and neck cancers as defense for when those lawsuits would come. And so it was really good for me to see that side of things before I ended up going to Consumer Reports, which once I got there, I started to realize, oh, okay, this is the side of 
things I, as a scientist, I want to be on. We took no advertising. Um, and I left there in charge of um, safety and sustainability and trying to marry those concepts together. Uh, because the more sustainable we are, the safer things are. And so we did deep dives, not just in food, but in personal care products and cleaning products, um, humidifiers, flooring. Um, so for me, I was the safety person in charge of chemical hazards and chronic toxicity issues. Um, we looked at a lot of carcinogens in the food supply, like from caramel color and sodas. We looked at arsenic and rice and uh, juices, we did a lot of risk assessments for kids, for pr women who were pregnant, trying to look at different vulnerable populations. Um, I spent some time on the FDA Food Advisory Committee um, and did a lot of lobbying at the National Organic Standards Board during those, those 17 years there. And um, just food became a passion for me. I mean, I've always loved it. I came from an Indian family. My mom cooked every single day. She made yogurt every day. Um, I'm first generation, so it was very different for me, but at the same time, I had that appreciation and love for food and complex food. Um, but how we grow it and people getting sick and cancer um, I think that really propelled me to get into food. We eat it three times a day, and that's sort of how I backed myself into this. Yeah. <laughs> um, how much now are you feeling the irony that the big fast food companies are touting antibiotic-free meat Ugh. after all that? <laughs> um, I don't feel very great about it, not because it's um, a wrong thing to do, but because it's not the full answer. And in mm -hmm. fact... When we look at the last, I don't know, 20 companies that have taken these corporate pledges to say we're not going to use human antibiotics, when you look at the FDA sales numbers of antibiotics for animal feed, they haven't changed that much. And in some ways, if you don't change the construct of the system, if you leave them as confined as they were, you're just going to shift that drug use from healthy animals to sick animals because they're going to get sicker faster and they have no space. And so... Those types of things, or if we're still doing physical alterations, we're docking tails, we're, we're chopping beaks. Animals are compromised in that way. They get sicker from those things. Um, or molting chickens for, for that last round of eggs. All of those things increase disease rates. They increase food safety problems um, and, and become problematic. Let's take Alice Water's suggestion and talk about some good news. Great. Um, so... What are you seeing that you're excited about? It could be something from this weekend. It could be anything happening in regenerative ag. What is the good food news? You know, uh, every couple of years, a new issue comes along that sort of kicks the dust up in food. And this, this year, last year, it's climate. Um, and I love... Um, you said quinine? Climate. 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 Thank you. Sorry, yeah. I got excited about gin and tonics on the mind. Yeah. <laughs> Climate, thank Climate. you. Climate. Um, and it's another good lens for people to look at this problem. The UN's meeting in September over climate. There's going to be a number of us in food and ag at the meetings. They're interested. The IPCC report is interested in ag and its role. And I think what I'm most excited about is ag as, the, as a solution. It's not just... It, Yes, industrial ag is a problem, um, but the solution also lies in agriculture. The solution also lies in grazing animals. And so to, again, get back to that narrative question, you know, being able to 
get people to understand that fully and realize that if we actually take the right approach, we solve a number of different problems, not just carbon sequestration, not just energy conservation, not just water conservation or cleanliness um, or pollution in the environment. We actually solve a number of different things. And I think we're hopefully hitting that tipping point where it seems worth it to take that effort and go in that direction in a more mainstream way. Do you have anything um, that you're excited to see in kind of food and logistics technology? Any of the like food apps, food startups, what's happening on the tech front that has you jazzed up? I'm not the best tech person, um, but I do think, look, there are a lot of great apps out there um, on food. I think we at Foodprint have all of this label information that we think is incredibly important. So you can have a lot in the palm of your hands. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really exciting. I'll give a little twist, though, to that answer, which is that where I think technology is, <laughs> is really critical right now is in helping communities who live near industrial factory farms be able to do the citizen science work that they need to to prove that their health is being compromised because they're being polluted directly. And we have some really interesting handheld device information, thinking about crowdsourcing that data that then lawyers could use to bring that to the fore and apply a little more accountability into the situation. I think that's where technology for me is the most exciting that in putting awesome. it into people's hands. So for anyone listening, how can they find out more information about getting access to those handheld devices or getting involved in some of that like boots on the ground tracking? You know, I think that these devices are still kind of new and coming out and you can do a number of different things with them. And really it has to right now be done you want to kind of work with a scientific group so that you have that underpinning to it uh, because you still need to be consistent with your sampling and a number of other things in order for that data to be useful in a bigger way. Um, I know that Johns Hopkins, CLF, has been doing a lot of work, the Center for a Livable Future, University of North Carolina, Duke, um, University of uh, Arizona State University, and um, I think Berkeley is actually doing some of that work as well. That's awesome. You and I are both career changers from, like, we'll say hard sciences, from, like, pretty precise biological fields <laughs> into food and particularly food media and sharing information. Um, how do we encourage more people to do what we did? Um, you know, scientists in general don't like to take positions on things because they think that makes them biased. And I had a really great mentor at Consumer Reports who, who kind of clarified for me that you can have a position on something and do it in an, in an unbiased way. And um, that really helped propel me into being a, scien a scientist who's an advocate. And I kind of wear that proudly. And I know that makes a lot of scientists uncomfortable. But I think part of that too is helping scientists understand public speaking, media literacy, how you defend a study, how do you contextualize a study. Um, and I have to say that I think if you're in science just for the academic exercise of it, we're not benefiting fully from that work. And so when I see research on pesticides, but we can't get the scientists to say very much more besides what they did, 
it's disheartening because we know how much power that has. And I think scientists as well as the public health um, professionals all need to be in this world. We need them. And um, they understand it from a toxics perspective. They get that. Um, and so I think if we can somehow marry how sustainable regenerative systems actually also address the toxic side of things as well, we'll be able to draw more of those folks into our sort of side of things. Mm -hmm. And then sort of the reverse of that question, right? So we're talking about scientists sort of figuring out how to make their information more accessible to people who are not scientists. How do we go the other way too and empower people to understand scientific research? Yeah, and it's maybe a great you have question. some resources that you know, are, are great York for that. The New York Times has done such a nice job with the data visualization. And data visualization is now becoming a field unto itself. And it is so powerful. You know, when we did a study of pesticide residues and produce, we went through hundreds of thousands of data points in the USDA database. And the only way for us to prioritize what work we wanted to do was to have somebody digest that in a visualization that we could see. And I had um, one of my staffers who was a PhD in theoretical chemistry basically put together all the visualization. And, you know, within a couple hours of going through her stuff, we were able to see things we could not see just from the data dumps alone. So I think binding up the data and looking at it visually is really important. I think understanding where statistical significance is and where it's not is really important. I just reviewed a paper recently where I saw nothing of statistical significance and lots of claims were being made in the paper. And when I asked them about that, they, they replied that, it wasn't being done for statistical significance. So it's important to just clarify and make sure that all of the P's and Q's have been done. And once that's been done, extracting that and making summaries, uh, pamphlets, putting things on websites in, in sort of more digested versions. I think videos these days are incredibly informative um, and doing little vignettes. It's hard to learn it all in one bite. So. I guess that's maybe the benefit of where we are right now is small bites and getting information in a small bite kind of way, but maybe that's okay. And if we can somehow morph this information into these sort of bite-sized pieces that people can chew and think on and then get them to the next step, I think that's kind of the best way forward. That's a super inspiring takeaway. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. We are coming up Gals. on the end of our segment, but I want to say a huge thank you again to Urvashi Rangnan for joining us today on thank Heritage you. Radio Network on tour. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to HRN. I want to say thanks again to our sponsors who've made our coverage this weekend possible, to Slow Food Nations, to Hearst Ranch, to Big Green Egg, and the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. And we'll be back in just a few minutes after a very short break. <laughs>